Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ryan Kelly Burnett. We're at Dominio 4. It's May 13th, 2021. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us today. Stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, most important question, as you know, is why wine? Oh, probably the beer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I think it's, you know, it's obviously a deep, rich history, but I also kind of look at it like it's the greatest reality TV show that can't really be filmed. And so you look at the layers, but like being able to capture it in just, you know, an hour segment, it's impossible. <laughs> the personalities, the stories that go into one bottle of wine, the depth that it takes just to get to that and how many people go into that one bottle. You know, I think that story is sometimes overlooked and kind of focused on one person instead of the whole picture. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it's innovative, it's creative, um, and, you know, it's a, it's a weird <laughs> lifestyle addiction. Tell us a little bit about your uh, kind of pre-wine life, up- upbringing and education. Um, so I grew up just outside of Atlanta um, in a little town called Covington, Georgia. Um, I grew up on a kind of private hunting club. So I had a lot of access to land and a good time for first kind of 10 years of my life. And yeah, it was, you know, a little bit more of my redneck days, I would call them. Um, But it was definitely just a, you know, a good kid friendly environment and, you know, had a lot of fun. And then uh, we moved into town uh, kind of right around when it turned to about 11 and so you kind of get transitioned from that into kind of turning into a townie and um, and it was just a different chapter and you know, you miss the farm life, but then you kind of developed a better friendship because you're closer to people. Um, but yeah, you know, it was, it was a good time. Did you, have an, did you have an idea what you wanted to do when you grew up? I went through everything. Like when I was living on the farm, I thought I was gonna become like a professional skeet instructor um you know i'm just shooting clay pigeons and doing all that and then uh, i thought for some point i wanted to be a chef and then it was a history teacher and then through all the works and then you kind of get to the end of it and you're like i don't know what i want to (laughs) do so um yeah i graduated i went to uni for a couple years and then it was actually my mom who kind of pushed me to, you know, she was like, why don't you take a gap year and, uh, you know, go do a harvest. Cause she had just gotten back um, from New Zealand um, where that side of the family is from and kind of had uh, seen some stuff from Hawks Bay in the Napier area. And um, she was like, all right, let's see if, if we can land you a spot somewhere. So um, I'm still on my gap year. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, I left in 2009 and I did my first harvest at Carlo and Julian, Felix Madrid. Um, and that was just, it was like the perfect environment, you know, like 
from Vine to the winery, you were doing it all. Um, and then not the, you know, the complicated, like it was boutique-y. Um, and Felix, you definitely pushed me in the right direction. And um, yeah, we made some fun wines, so. Tell me about that first harvest, about your kind of initial impressions of the work. Um, I mean, it was kind of what I was used to. Like, our family always has been like, you know, just a kind of, you know, grind it out, get after it, you know, just get in there and get your hands dirty. Um, and so I felt very comfortable in it. And I think that's why I still do, because it is physical, but then it's also being able to express yourself creatively. Um, and so that first one, you know, like I, I drive, drive across the country with my cousin, drop him off at the airport and I'm like, oh man, I'm alone. Like <laughs> I am on the West Coast and I don't know anyone. And I pull up and Felix was pushing up the last wall <laughs> on the shack that uh, we were living in for harvest. And I was like, all right, here we go. Um, and you know, it was, it was fun. And, and especially with Felix, it wasn't just the wine, you know, like taking care of ducks or doing whatever's needed to be kind of on that, you know, his little farm there. And, um, and he's just salt of the earth, always has a pot of black beans going and yeah, that's good. So it was a perfect experience for like a first harvest. Mm -hmm. So outside of the kind of the, 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 the work itself, what, 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 what did you notice any other kind of, what, what else appealed to you about it? Was there something else that appealed to you about, about the industry at that point? Um, at that point, it was just something new, you know, like it, it created a, you know, a difference and a depth. And I was like, okay, you know, I didn't think it was going to be something I was going to do forever. Um, and then you do that first harvest and you're like, oh, <laughs> and so like you go down and you start chasing and, you, and uh, you know, you chase harvest for a few years and you're like, okay. And, um, but I think it's like, you know, like as I said at the beginning, it's, it's that social aspect of this industry that, you know, you create this layering depth of friends and it's the same thing of what you're trying to shoot for in that bottle of wine, you know, like you want it to, you know, create a story and those people all build into the story of your, you know, this whole journey that we're, we've all been on mm -hmm. throughout this industry and the ups and downs and the highs and lows and yeah. So after the first harvest, what did you do, what did you do next? Uh, so, um, drove back to Georgia, and then three days later, I was on a plane in New Zealand for a year almost. Um, I worked down at Mud House Wines um, for the 2010 harvest, um, and it goes from doing I think at Carl and Julian we did like 19 tons or so. <laughs> and then did almost 7,000. And it was just night and day. And like those first couple of weeks, you're just, it was, you, you come from this like organic kind of, you know, natural environment. And then it's just tank farms and 11, 15 ton presses and you're working 12 hour shifts. And so it took a second, but then you realize what it's really doing because 
that's kind of how most wines made in the world and your brain changes so you go from that creativity aspect to more of learning logistics mm -hmm. and learning equipment and kind of actually what real winemaking kind of is you know um and so you know once you embrace that it's like all right you kind of feel this rhythm all right can I, how many rackings can i do at the same time while running the rdv and then helping out your mate and like it's just you, you get into this hype rhythm and um it was really fun because I think there was 54 interns from all over the world, and so it was just like three months of working hard and having a good time. <laughs> so um, yeah, I did that, um, and so I stayed on at Mudhouse till August of 2010, um, and then came back to Georgia, kind of had a little couple of weeks of rest, and then drove out to Napa for my first California harvest. Um, I worked at Antica Napa Valley, so an Antonori project um, up on top of uh, Atlas Peak AVA. Um, Nate Weiss was the winemaker during that time. Um, and yeah, and it was just, you know, it's another experience. And like, I think that's what I've used in this is just trying to learn from all these other uh, kind of winemakers and you know seeing how different facilities are set up and um yeah it's you know it was just cool kind of napa was fun <laughs> <laughs> not sure if i want to be down there permanently but like i do i do enjoy it mm -hmm. every once in a while when i get down there so tell me how they compared from the, as an as an intern how the, the different regions compared for you and what, what you kind of gathered from each stop along the way it's been interesting because i do think you've seen a change in internship over the years especially as things get more expensive and stuff like you go from kind of earlier days where like housing provided and like all these kind of things and now it's a little bit more independent mm -hmm. um and i think it's just region based though like in New Zealand, I think we screwed that up. <laughs> um, all, all me and my Italians and my Argentinian friends, like, that was a good time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's just like anything, everything's evolving. And um, I think it's, every spot's gonna be unique, even if you're going back to the same region. It's like the vintage is gonna change. Um, it's just number one word in wine depends. Like it's just depends on what happens at that time. At what point along the way did you start to think of this as something you wanted to do long term, or did you did did you, did you have a goal in mind when you when you were traveling? You know, you look back at it and you wish you had taken some of it a little bit more serious during that time. <laughs> Um, but I think it was Napa that really hit me where I was like, okay, I do think this is what I want to do professionally. Um, I found myself really being captivated by sparkling wine. Um, and, you know, I, I think I've remembered most things, but like, there's just, you know, there's minute details of, as well as like most wines, like, it's off-season work of where you're really kind of putting those polishing and learning those techniques. And so I feel like it is when you get to the point of, you know, full-time work mm -hmm. at a space, that's when you're really seeing the full picture. 
um, and being able to, you know, complete from start to finish and, you know, learn the, the tinkering winemaking aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, after Napa, I, I definitely thought I was like, oh, okay. I could see myself like leaning towards white wine slash bubbles. Um, so I worked down at Craiglinger Piper's Brook in Tasmania. So I was down there for the 2011 harvest. Um, so it's about an hour and a change outside of Launceston. Um, and 2011, I think, was one of their hardest harvests since like the 70s or something. <laughs> it was just, we were supposed to do like 1,800 tons or something, and we did 600. Mm. Just, and it was, fruit quality was really tough, but again, it was a good time and met some amazing people. and. Um, yeah, you, you saw actually how labor intensive bubbles can be. Um, and so, you know, it, it's still captivating to me, but it definitely gave me the exposure of like, oh, that's not exactly what I want to do. Um, but I, I still enjoy the bubbles a lot. As a consumer, maybe more than a producer, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, especially with this valley now, you see how explosive um, the bubbles scene has been for, you know, everybody's got one now. Um, and it is one of those things like, what style of bubbles, if it's still bubbly, matters the most, you know? And I think you do taste the layering in it and stuff, but, um, I mean, I think like Patrick and I, we shoot to make, we do a Tremont style and we shoot to make it a very high level, but you know, it's force carb, like, but it bubbles and tastes good. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's, it's cool to see all these um, different styles of bubbles coming out and I think it's cool for the industry. So you mentioned kind of the, the full-time job as the, the, the chance to sort of see the whole process. So at, at what point did you, what, what was your next step in, toward, toward a full-time job? Um, well, so after Tassie, I called Patrick because we had met during that uh, 2009 harvest when I started and uh, I had had his VNA and I was like, I got to make that eventually. <laughs> that was real good. Um, and so called him up and came back for the 11 harvest and uh, yeah, just had a blast with him, working with him. And um, it was when our facility was still in the uh, granary district. And so Lumos was in there. So you get, you get all this exposure to all these different vineyards um, for what we're making with Dominio 4 and our clients and with Lumos and Dive, you know, farming Temperance Hill and um, working with Julia Cattrall and Mordecai was our mm -hmm. cellar master at the time and we just, you know, it was a, that was a hard harvest. It was definitely one of the more physical harvests that I think I've ever done, but um, I do think it's a very beautiful classic style of Oregon Pinot. Um, that we've definitely seen change over the past, you know, nine years. Um, but yeah, and so after that, you know, finding full-time seller works, not always like at your doorstep. Um, and so I actually went back to Georgia 
and it ended up working retail um, and that was just a 180 as well as realizing how little you know <laughs> <laughs> like having the exposure um, and like especially during trade show sh season you're going to three trade shows a week and tasting and tasting and tasting and you're like okay and you see the vast and diversity um, grapes that you or winemakers you never thought you'd meet and it's just it was a brilliant crash course and um, yeah Cindy our head wine buyer uh, she she educated me a lot and very well and her palate kind of was one of the first times that like you're working with somebody that actually explains it to you kind of thing mm -hmm. um, about the different regions and the processes and like the history of why something's called what it is and um, so I tell all people getting in the industry work at a massive production and work retail like that it gives you such a good base and frame um, to kind of you know your brain can think big to small but when your brain's only been thinking small it's hard to like really expand and kind of learn those logistics mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. so you're in retail at this point how do you get back here uh, when I left I told Patrick I was pencil me in for next harvest I'm coming back <laughs> and so um, yeah I worked 10 months retail and then loaded up the rig again and drove back out so I've uh, driven across the country a few times for this <laughs> harvest gig um, and so yeah at, that was for 12 um, and talk about a fun harvest just getting back and like it was the first time ever coming back to a region so you have like established mates around and like um, it was it was fun and it was good to see everybody again and that's when I knew I was going to be out here permanently um, and for that first year it was still a hustle aspect I mean for my 2013 taxes I had eight W-2s and <laughs> 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 then very yeah but it was a lifestyle you know and you never felt like you were struggling struggling it's just you were just here and trying to you know working in so many different facilities you get to see all these kind of different tools and what people are doing and how they're doing it so um, I think it was a despite the mild struggle like it was a good year mm -hmm. right um, and then so after uh, 13 is when I was kind of full-time with Dominio 4 mm -hmm. so yeah so this past this will be Patrick and I's 11th harvest together so uh, we know each other pretty well <laughs> by this point. Why did you want to be here? Um, I think it's, you know, I felt like I, at the beginning, you see the kind of transition to the valley. And so, like, when I came back in 12, you kind of were like, oh, that's a new label. Or, like, you know, it's expanding as a valley, and definitely have we how we've seen it over the past years of how many labels have popped up and kind of the diversity of what people are making. You kind of, you know, I think we're in a valley of a really, you know, vast array of mediums. Mm -hmm. So you can, you know, grow some weird stuff, and people are trying to push boundaries, sometimes a little too hard, 
Um, but, you know, I, I think here, you know, probably for like this, the acidity too, mm -hmm. like I'm, I like pretty high acid wines and, but not like over the top, you know, it needs to be balanced, but um, yeah, and it's just kind of, you know, also where you just end up, you know, I, I was like back in the 2010, I actually was hired up at Book Walter, but then thought Antonori was better on the resume, so <laughs> could have been in Washington, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, just make plans to break plans. <laughs> so. so by the time you got in here, you worked a lot of different places with a lot of different, a lot of different people. Obviously, a lot of different styles. Um, tell me about as you were thinking about making wine and, and being in a place permanently. Tell me about sort of what you had taken away in terms of what you wanted to do, what you wanted to make, and maybe what you didn't want to make. Kind of as your philosophy was kind of being honed. I think. I mean, it's tough to say what, what I don't want to make because even if it's like a varietal that's not like popular in the market or is thought lesser of even, like you still kind of want to make it to a degree that makes people excited about it again, you know? Um, and, you know, like I feel like Pinot Gris taking a dip, but then like everybody's starting to make it even at a higher level now, and so it is not as boring as you know people can make it out to be, but because mm -hmm. it's, it's how it's made, mm -hmm. you know, if you make it with intention, you farm it with intention, you know, it it comes through in that glass. Um, trying to think of what I wouldn't want to make. It's not. <laughs> that's about it or Carmen Air it's not my style but other than that I, I mean like I call myself a closet cab whore like I I, I love a good cab <laughs> but you know um, and but uh, yeah you know white wine doesn't really stay around our house too much mm -hmm. so uh, I do I really enjoy making white wine is kind of, uh, I think it's loads of diversity and, uh, you know, I think you can show an aspect of purity from the vineyard, but also put a little bit of your own unique kind of style on there where like, you know, mm -hmm. keeps it interesting. What about in sort of in terms of um, sort of style or, or place? You, you, you chose a, a pretty small place uh, to come back to. Um, why Dominio 4? Why, what, what about this place appealed to you? Um, probably because it's, we don't rarely do Patrick and I choose the easy way. Like, we're only doing, you know, 50, I think we did 52 tons last year, but it's it turns into like 40 odd lots mm -hmm. because we look at it as like, you know, I think he and I really excel on blending. And so we call it the arsenal and we want as much kind of tools when we go to blending to create as much 
layering into it. So, you know, between whatever we, cooperage or, you know, yeast we're choosing or, but like, we just want to have, you know, you look up and there's 50 barrels and I want each one of those to be unique, um, to, you know, layer it all together mm -hmm. and, you know, but yeah, we don't, we don't make it easy on ourselves, <laughs> but I think it comes through in the final product. So about your sort of initial role here and how it's changed over the years. Yeah, I mean, I was just simple harvest seller rat, just hanging around <laughs> until somebody would kick me out. So uh, they kept me. Um, but yeah, so 12 and 13, well, 11 to 13, and then uh, was basically just 13 was kind of part-time when they needed help throughout the year. And then post 13 harvest, um, Patrick uh, offered me the kind of front of house slash part-time seller hand. So, you know, running wine club, tasting room, all that stuff, mm -hmm. which was kind of cool because you connect with like some of these wine club members have been around with Patrick and Lee since 2002. So you like hearing the stories that they have about seeing what Dominio has grown into. Mm -hmm. um, and so did that for about a year and a half and then took over the cellar in 2015. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, and it, that's when we were still in the building and, uh, you know, between Dominio 4 and our clients and then uh, with Luma, so it was, pretty full on and in that building it was what was our I think we were like 6,800 square feet or something but one floor drain <laughs> so a lot of vacuuming and yeah you, you you learn to work very clean as possible just because <laughs> there wasn't anywhere to go but um yeah and I think it's you know when you work in space spaces like that you know your brain starts working logistically of all right, well, we don't have anywhere to go sideways. You got to go up. So, <laughs> you know, you stack five, six high when you have to. And, um, but it was good. You know, it's, it's another thing that kind of just makes your brain, you know, plan for wherever else you go because you never know what will happen. And, um, and especially with us kind of taking over this project out here, um, it, you know, a lot of learning curves of logistics mm -hmm. and how to set up a brand new one. I'd never done that. Um, but yeah, it's, we have a little bit more breathing room out here. Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about that, about moving into this space and, and all the things you had to, had to learn and figure out. Uh, yeah, 2018 was a, f <laughs> that would probably be my only dip of like morale. In this <laughs> We m moved out. August 1st of 2018. The tasting room had been opened here August of 2017, but the winery wasn't ready basically up until that point. And so we moved. I did all the barrel to barrel racking, bottling in like five weeks, and then harvest started. And it was a massive harvest. Like, um, and so it was just constant for about four months of like no real breathing room. Um, so I was pretty fried by the end of that year and that's the only time that I was just like, okay, 
<laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> but, you know, it was good. And I, I mean, I love that 2018 harvest, you know, like if you think it's not what I would consider classic Pinot, but if you're going to have something like that to be high structure, high acid, high fruit intensity, I do think it is a, you know, pretty monumental vintage for Oregon. Um, but yeah, it's, it, and we're still, you know, three years later, we're still making minute adjustments to the building and being like, all right, well, we'll get to that project now. And now we'll get there. But um, yeah, it's, it was, yeah, it was definitely something of a, you know, an added <laughs> bonus chapter. <laughs> <laughs> what is sort of the, the goal here on this site? What, with, with, with all the, the expansion here, what, 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 what is the goal with, with what you can do here that you couldn't do before? control <laughs> I mean you know with Lee being the farmer she is like I feel like our fruit quality is always pretty high level between our vineyard and the gorge at three sleeps and now with us having our own estate Pinot um, I think we've planted in a pretty cool kind of array of clones slash kind of having different diversity coming down the hill. Um, Lee definitely nixed some of the ideas Patrick and I had. <laughs> um, but, you know, we've got seven different clones coming down the hill and I think we have a pretty cool aspect. Um, and, you know, we've worked with fruit from this kind of little sub valley kind of thing from Patrick's been working with Sturmer since 2005, 2006, and so we're very familiar with that. We've done a couple of vintages with Timble and Time, um, and so you kind of you kind of know what's going to happen around. But um, yeah, this was—I mean, last year was our first year pulling fruit off, and it wasn't very descriptive of what we feel like the vineyard. <laughs> just a little, just a little haze in the air. <laughs> Um, so we're really excited about this year because so, we will get a much better aspect of, you know, what each parcel is kind of doing and what's, you know, how expressive it is. And, mm -hmm. and the thing that will change us as a brand, you know, like Patrick and I like to make skews <laughs> out of, you know, 2011, we made 11 different Pinots. Um, <laughs> so it was... I think it either simplifies us or we'll create more headache. But either way, we'll figure it out once we get there. Um, but I think it'll be cool to kind of just have a wee bit more control over what, you know, our farming practices are and um, kind of just kind of showcasing the site. Mm -hmm. So tell me about working with, with, with Patrick and Lee and, and what you've sort of learned from them over the years. Uh, they're just, you know, I, I think that's another reason of not, I'm quasi-institutionalized. <laughs> uh, like, they're just salt of the earth and, you know, just a constant aspect of support for your job as well as, you know, personal life. You know, like, they are my bosses, but they're also, like, you know, some of my best friends. Um, and, you know, especially with Patrick, it's... He's given me a platform to kind of have a lot of autonomy with his brand. Um, and I feel like he does trust me more and more. And, um, but also, you know, we just, I think we feed off each other really well. 
um, because we have different palettes, but the goal's the same. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's always trying to heighten and increase that level of um, you know depth in the wine. So it rarely, you know, as good friend says, dogma does not make terroir-driven wine. So, you know, it's constantly adjusting and trying to make it better. You know, if something is working, you know, hone in on that, but let's see what this does too. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, and then, yeah, Lee's just a badass farmer. So, yeah, it's, they're, you know, I, it'd be, I couldn't imagine being anywhere else, mm -hmm. um, especially with how supportive they are. So. so your role now is associate winemaker here. Tell me, tell me what that means. What does it mean to be an associate winemaker? It's just a title. <laughs> You're still doing it all, you know, and I think, I, I hope it was given to me in the aspect of it's just like us working as associates together. It's, to me, it's not like an aspect of ego of like I'm the associate winemaker you know unless it you know unless it needs to be uh, <laughs> but I you know it's still cleaning drains and doing tanks and rackings and um, you know it is still you know making sure you're reading and learning and trying to figure out new techniques and stuff but um, yeah, I'm still just doing everything else a standard seller rat would do. Um, but I think it's it's good. I'm a little bit of a control freak. So I think like, you know, the, the seller gives me like a comfort of organized chaos. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. So, uh, did I answer the question? Sure, absolutely. Okay, cool. <laughs> you mentioned clients. Uh, tell me about working working with clients outside of, outside of the Dominio Four brand. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we've made wine for an array of people. Um, so, Dominio Four, we have an umbrella company, Missing Silo Wines. Um, so that's our umbrella, and that's. Patrick and Scott Flora with Native Flora Wines started that company in 2009, I believe. Um, and so we've, I mean, our b biggest two clients are Dominio Four and Native Flora, um, but we also, Patrick's been making wine for uh, Bella Vita for the Two Road program, and then in 2012, I believe, or 13, we started making their Griesling which was a pretty fun little Pinot Gris Riesling mitt. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great working with Steve and Allison. Um, and then, who else have we done? We were making for a brand called Expression 44, which is a California-based group. Um, and so we were kind of working with some Rose Rock fruit, which was pretty fun. Um, and then... <clears throat> 2014, we brought on uh, John Zelko with Zevo Wines, and talk about the easiest client. Like, 
We put the we put his wine to tank for this very first time we like 2014, and it was supposed to be a whole cluster blend and a mainline blend. And we we did all of our trials and we're just like, oh, everything together works. And he shows up with labels, <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, no, this is what was supposed to happen. We're like. Got away with that one. <laughs> but it was awesome working with that fruit. Um, he had had, you know, um, we were making his pinot for him, and then and a little bit of rosé. And then in 2017, uh, we made some Chardonnay for him. And that, I do think that th that Ziva Vineyard is a very distinct terroir driven site. Like, you, you definitely. No, those wines, especially on the white cells, especially from the, like, you taste the Pinot Blancs and Chardonnay, you're like, oh, you see totally two different grapes and uh, very strong similarities between the two. And I'm trying to think who else we've made for. Uh, we did one, in 2018, we did Toomey. Mm -hmm. um, so Silver Oaks mm -hmm. sister winery, um, which was awesome because Nate Weiss is their big title, Silver Oak, whatever that is. But he met, he's basically managing the whole system, and so it was awesome working with him again. Like, love that dude. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was it was a good time hanging out with him and Chris Burrows. So um, yeah, we had we had a good time. <laughs> Um, but other than that, yeah, it just depends on the uh, year, you know, they come and go. I'm, I have a little project I make for called Cougars Mart. Um, Michael Smith's the owner, proprietor for that, so he lets me have a bit of fun with some Pinot and I make a little Pinot Gris for him. Um, uh, and I think that's it, you know. When it comes to working with clients like that, uh, tell me about that sort of building that relationship and that and that trust and, and and making wines that work for the people you're making them for. I think it's tough in the sense of also making, you know, understanding what they want. You know, like I will say, you know, it takes a few years to figure out the vineyard. Um, I think that's the same with the client and understanding what they want from the wine because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think they know what they want and then it comes down to like, oh no, that's actually what I wanted. Um, and so I think it's just a healthy guy because, you know, they're hiring you and hopefully it's because they've tasted our wines that we're making. Oh, I want to be in that facility. So I think it's a little bit of like putting the trust in our hands. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, we're very lucky with all of our clients of um, how easy they really are. Um, you know, I've, I've heard some horror stories out there about relationships ending and not being on a positive line. <laughs> so, um, yeah. It, I, but it is a lot of trust. And I feel that I take that responsibility pretty seriously of like saying like I've you know you're paying for this but I want it to taste like this I want it to feel like this is over delivering and you, it you want to keep making these vintages with us so so if you had to sum up your sort of winemaking philosophy or winemaking style how would you describe it um 
I think style is always evolving. I, I mean, for me, like, just drinking the nerdiest shit back in the day, and then all of a sudden be like, oh, I, I want to be a little bit more balanced, you know? Because I think your palate also gets more educated, and so, like, you're like, oh, okay, and you start tasting different wines, and you're like, oh, you, you see that layering, and like, all right, acid can have fruit and oak, and like, I do like acid and oak together. I think it's, you know, um, and so stylistically, I wouldn't say I have a style because I think that's with the client winemaking. I wouldn't say like, you know, I don't ever want to, like I'm not a good reductive winemaker. Um, that was one, be one style that it would take me a bit of effort mm -hmm. um, to kind of fully understand. Cause I just, I don't know. It's just not what I feel like uh, hone in on, but um style yeah i don't know i think it's you know like i said that just puts you into a dogmatic aspect and with the array of vintages we've seen over the past 10 years you have to think differently or you know the your same the same thing you did in 12 did not work in 13. um and same you know if, if you're making it the exact same way every time it, are you doing the vineyard justice and so I think you have to be able to mold and adapt and kind of think in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I, th I think styles, you know, for me personally, I know what the styles we're making for certain labels we're hitting consistently, but I wouldn't say as a winemaker, I'm like this style, mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure if people tasted my stuff, they'd be like, no, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Like, uh, yeah, some of the stuff I've made and sent home to mom and dad, mom's like, oh, yep, you like your acid. <laughs> I was like, I didn't find it that bad. <laughs> the harshest critics of all, right? <laughs> yeah, but like also supportive, you know? I, my brother's always joking about how I manipulate my mom's palate so bad. And like, even beer, and he's just, yeah, he has, he takes a good mick out of me for it. But um, no, I, I'm, I'm very lucky that to have the, all the opportunities I've had. Like I'm extremely lucky for, you know, the, my parents and my siblings and um, like my partner and my kids allowing me to have this, you know, artistry lifestyle. Um, they endure three months of hell every year, so uh, appreciate you guys. Uh, and uh, so, I, you know, it's, it's the full compositive, you know, people here that, you know, give me the platform to excel at something I really love to do. And I don't, you know, I don't know what else I would be doing. So you made reference earlier to, to 2020 and, and the, the interesting year that it was. So um, let's talk about the pandemic, first of all. I'm curious mm -hmm. from your perspective, um, sort of initial reaction to uh, the pandemic last spring and, and, and how it changed your, or affected your work life last year. It was, it was really stressful. Like uh, Courtney and I have a high-risk daughter. Um, and so like we locked down pretty early. Um, and, you know, 
I think it's like anything these days. You want to go ahead? Okay, it's a tractor. <laughs> um, personally, I felt anxiety just because like it's the unknown, and not like where it's a harvest unknown, where you kind of have that uh, ability to guide. I, you know, I think it was definitely like what is this like what is you know covid or you know i think it was just so many variables that weren't being answered um so yeah those first couple of months were pretty high anxiety and you know you get to bond with your family really well but like it didn't i think it was tough because we had kind of even despite dominio 4 being around since 2002 we were still kind of like new kids on the block. Like we were, you know, out in the hills now and like developing relationships with different wineries around here. And so like you saw this great influx of uh, support from consumers and then you're like, oh, we're shut down, shut down. And so like takes the wind out of the sails a little bit. Um, but I mean, luckily people still drink. <laughs> um, but. Overall, for my work, it didn't affect me too bad. Um, with Patrick and I being pretty much the only ones in the cellar on a day-to-day -day basis, and me most days just kind of doing the standard cellar life, like it's pretty safe. Um, and so it, that transition, and then like just the adjustments, getting closer to harvest of safety and protocol, and. You know, the awkwardness of like, do we shake hands? <laughs> nope, can't do that. You know, you just, you know, like, I don't like that. Like, I like, you know, the social environment and wanting people to like come to the farm and be relaxed about it. And I think, you know, our, our front of house staff has done a great job of making people, once we were able to reopen, come, but feel comfortable. And I think also people were just ready to get out again. Um, but I think, you know, they did a really good job of, you know, making sure that this was a place that you could come, enjoy a flight or a glass of wine, um, mm -hmm. and feel comfortable again. You know, try to get back to some form of normalcy. Mm -hmm. So, and if we ever do, <laughs> maybe someday. And of course, the other part of 2020 was, as you mentioned, harvest uh, and the difficulties there. So, so tell us about kind of the reaction to and, and the strategies for dealing with with the harvest under the smoke last year? A lot of shooting from the hip. Um, you know, I had made, like, went and picked up something on the west side of Portland, drove over Bald Peak, and two hours later, it's on fire. And I was just like, oh God, here we go. Mm -hmm. Um, because you had that one going, then you had the Hag Lake, then you had the St. EM, and you're kind of like, okay, what's happening? And I feel like we were still kind of on the early side for picking, but you know, you just had to pull that trigger. Um, and it was definitely learning. You know, you're talking to people all over the place, people that, are ex that experience it almost every year. Um, and with our array, I mean, with Dominio, we're sourcing Grenache and Viognier from Southern Oregon, our Three Sleeps Vineyard in the Gorge. Um, and so 
you're having to think about all those factors of where all this different freight are coming. Um, and yeah, it was, it, it, that was winemaking. And not in the same aspect of like a 13 or a 19 of like fine tuning and kind of really pulling it out. It was techniques that you're just like, oh God, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, some of those things just totally changed your chemistry. Um, and it'll be interesting seeing what hits the market. This, it's tough. It was, 2020 was going to be such a great year. Just, yeah. yeah. For winemakers, not so gross. The set was a little low, but just, it was going to be an awesome harvest. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I think it was just like, the cherry on top of the screw you 2020 Sunday. Like, it just, it was like, really? We just couldn't have one little element of like a ray of sunshine for this year. Um, that was a learning curve, and you know, there's always next year. So. <laughs> you talk about some of the kind of the shooting from the hip aspect of things. I'm curious with sort of decisions and strategies you had to employ with those grapes, and and, and, and deciding to pick and deciding what to do with them once you picked them. Tell me, tell me about that process for you. Um, I mean, I was pretty proud of our facility because we didn't reject any fruit you know we'll still give it the old college try um, and because it was also learning for us like I think there's techniques that we saw in that process that also might be implemented on a good year anyways mm -hmm. like just um, but you know we definitely made less red wine um, press things early uh, you know white Pinot, <laughs> it's all the rage people. Um, but I, and I think that was one thing, like I, I think the whites and are pretty good um, and really like escaped a bit of the smoke and, um, but, and so we're still working on techniques now to kind of pull out some of those uh, polyphenols and chrysols out of the wine now. Uh, and, trying to make it into, you know, something purdy. Mm -hmm. So if you, can, if you can think back for me, do you, tell me about your initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry and, and of, the, of the wines here and of the industry itself. What, what was your initial impression? I feel like, I kind of joke and say like, I got on the coattail of the good old days and then you've seen the investment and like the changing of like, where people are putting a lot of time and effort and finances into these labels and tasting rooms and you're just saying, you're like, okay, like we're kind of growing up a bit mm -hmm. um, for good and for bad. But I think it's changed just a little bit on the aspect of like the purity kind of thing. And it's turned into more of, you know, logistics and business, um, which is not a bad thing. I think, you know, like, having those finances come in, you, you're seeing uh, different farming practices and what people kind of like, I think everybody's goal is still to keep this valley at a very high level. And it is good to see that like our wine quality is still staying at a uh, certain mm -hmm. level and to be kind of, you know, respected throughout the world and for what we're doing. And um, I mean, we're pretty consistent in the valley and 
at making a high-level product. So, um, yeah. What about as you look ahead for the industry? What's what's it going to look like in the coming years? From your perspective. Yeah. I mean, it'll be. Uh, it's kind of tough because so much has changed so quickly that I think you know. How much, you know, there's still plenty of land to plant, but I don't know if we need to at this time. Um, I'm more curious about like what kind of uh, varieties people are gonna start really kind of pushing around here. Um, Cause I do think, you know, we can grow quite a wide array. Um, not always as ripe as I think people think there are, <laughs> but like, but you know, what we're seeing with climate change uh, you know, what's happening with our water table. You know, you look at the Willamette River right now and it is very low. And, and so I think that's going to be the thing that kind of determines a lot of our future is climate and environment and, you know, that kind of aspect of competition. Um, so, but I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> What about as you look ahead for yourself? Like I said, I'm pretty institutionalized. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I would, you know, I'd like to expand our client base a little bit more. Um, we do have, you know, one client has uh, basically a winery ready and dormancy for when we expand into. Uh, how big we want to get, um, but yeah, I just I want to keep focusing in and keep you know keep ourselves at a higher standard and kind of you know be your own harshest critic and you know drop your ego and just make some damn wine. Are there any any projects for either for you yourself or for Dominion Four that you're looking forward to? Anything you're looking forward to trying or experimenting with? Um, I'm always curious on different cooperages. Mm -hmm. I do. Like, I think that you know, matching a cooperage with either the vineyard or kinetics of like fermentation is kind of fun. Um, uh, really excited to see what you know this property uh, is going to produce. I mean, we have Pinot and Chard, but we also have some Pinot Meunier planted, some Albarino, uh, and some Sauvignon Blanc. And when we can find uh, Chenin Blanc, we'll, we'll get that in the ground too. So, um, yeah, more white grapes. Mm -hmm. you know. mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it'll be fun to see kind of what this hillside's got to offer. Um, I think, yeah, I don't know. I feel like right now we're at a spot, you know, we're making such a diverse portfolio that it's like, you're always pretty entertained and, um, you know, playing around with the aspect of extended elevage in certain degrees and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. Any thoughts on making your own wine at some point? <laughs> I, yeah, no. 
I mean, like I said, Patrick gives me so much autonomy that like I feel like I'm able to express myself. And um, I mean, if somebody's paying you to do it, like making one's easy. <laughs> Selling it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> so uh, yeah, if I ever get to like a thing of like somebody's not doing this that I want to see or something like that, maybe, but um, as of right now, I'm just, I'm having too much fun. I, I, it's, yeah, I'm in a good spot, mm -hmm. so. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Any, anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered? Uh, I don't know. I think we're pretty covered bases. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time, thank for your you hospitality. Guys, really appreciate this and your, and your great answers. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.